0: Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website, nbbctx.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. All right, well, good morning to all of you. It's great to see you here. And uh, we are in week two of the Passion Series, this Passion Week Series. We're studying the events of Jesus leading up to uh, his death on a cross, and I want to remind you where we started last week uh, was Jesus in Mark chapter eleven, and with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we see Jesus riding in on an untamed. Cult, this untamed donkey. And what we see is that Jesus is riding in as an expression of the fact that the king that Jerusalem has, has been waiting for, the king that, that the Jewish people have been waiting for is finally here. Right, the one true king has arrived. And the fact is, is that this is not exactly the king that they were expecting, but this is definitely the king that was necessary. And so this is what we learned through the triumphal entry. But as we uh, ended uh, the passage, the, it ends kind of weird a little bit in verse 12 because it talks about that Jesus goes into the temple, okay? Jesus goes into the temple Does nothing, but then uh, we end it by them going back to Bethany. And so what we find out is that uh, at the end of the passage last week, Jesus was more or less, he was going and he was observing what was taking place in the temple. He was looking to ascertain what exactly is going on in the temple of God. And so then uh, we kind of pick up, this is what happens the next day. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. We're going to start in verses 15. We're going to read all the way through 19. And then we're going to pick out a couple of things that we see Jesus uh, revealing to us. And it says this in Mark chapter 11 verse 15. It says, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes, they heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then verse 19, when evening came, they went out of the city. All right, so what we see uh, that is very interesting to me is that this Uh, This passage, this uh, event of Jesus coming into, sweeping through uh, the temple, wreaking havoc on all of the temple, is sandwiched right in between a story or a parable about a fig tree. You see, when they were going toward the temple, Jesus and his disciples, they were were walking toward the temple, and we read in verses 12 and 14 that, that Jesus was hungry, and so he goes by. Uh, he sees a fig tree and he goes to it to get some fruit. But what do we find out? Well, the, the tree had absolutely no fruit. It says that there was nothing but leaves. There was nothing but leaves. And Jesus curses the tree and he says this. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. All right, so this is what Jesus is doing. They, they go uh, from there, they go into the temple and they, at the end of the passage, we see that, the, uh, that Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're walking in and, and verses, um, let's see, it'd be 20 through 22. And they, Peter looks at the fig tree and he says, hey, Jesus, look at the fig tree that you cursed. Look, it has withered from its roots. From the roots up, this tree that you have cursed is withered. And this is the only destructive miracle that we see in the gospels. This is the only destructive miracle. The, the, the cursing of the fig tree. And this serves as a parable because uh, the temple is sandwiched in between these two phrases and uh, this structure about the fig tree. What we see is that this is an illustration and a parable that is symbolic of the coming destruction of the temple. And so this is what Jesus is, is laying out here. And the entire passage, if you were to look at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21, it is about the destruction of the temple. Now, why is this important for us to realize? Well, the temple has been the centerpiece of the faith of Israel since its beginning. All right, and we, we see this uh, taking place in Genesis chapter 22. If you get to Genesis chapter 22, you have heard, uh, uh, we, you have read and learned uh, thus far that there's an Abrahamic covenant, right? God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he's saying, hey, you will be uh, the father of many nations, You and your people will be greater uh, than uh, just uh, the sands, you cannot count them, the sand on the beaches, the stars in the sky, that is how great your people will be. That is how many your people will be. And so God is saying, I'm giving you this covenant. I'm giving you, giving you this process that one day you will have a great nation. You will have a great kingdom. Well, this is what happens. It's coming through the lineage of his one and only son, Isaac. And when you get to Genesis chapter 22, there's a little bit of hiccup in the story because Abraham's faith is now being tested. And so Abraham is given the charge by God that says, hey, I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac. I I want you to take him to a place that I will tell you, and I want you to sacrifice him there for me. I want you to take his life there for me. So what does Abraham do? Well, he is obedient to what God is calling him to do. So he and his son Isaac, they pack up everything they need for the sacrifice, and they come to a place called Mount Moriah. And they come to this place, and it is there that God stops Abraham that he provides a different way. Remember there is a ram caught in the thicket and so God had provided for them an atonement for their sin. What happened there is that there was a replacement for Isaac and this would be the very place for history moving forward that, that there would be sacrifices at that place made on behalf of the people of God. 900 years later from that point, A guy named David, King David, goes and he purchases this very land. It's on the eastern side of Jerusalem. He uh, purchases this land of Mount Moriah, and it is there that Solomon will begin to build the temple of God. This is how this kind of unfolds. It is at this place, and the sacrifices that we see made starting in Genesis 22 would continue for the people of God because of God's provision in the temple. And ultimately, this is a sign of the people of God that this is the holy dwelling. This is the place that God Almighty will be. This is the manifest presence, the manifest dwelling of God being with the people here at this temple. And this is what we see taking place. But then something happens. The the people of God fall into sin. And what we learn is that uh, the Babylonians, they come, they take Israel captive. And what do they do? They destroy the temple. They destroy uh, the the symbol for which the presence of God is with the people of Israel. And so the Babylonians take uh, Israel captive. The first temple is destroyed. And the people come back from captivity about 70 years later only. Uh, to figure out that that a man named Zerubbabel, what is he going to do? He's going to again rebuild the temple. He is going to rebuild this temple that Solomon built, except he's going to do it in a very modest way. And then what happens uh, in Ezra chapter six? We learn that that the temple is complete. But then there's a guy named King Herod, and King Herod is like the Chip and Joanna Gaines of this time, right? So what does King Herod do? He comes in. He sees a temple that needs a little bit of restoration. All right, it needs a little bit of. Updating, needs some expansion. And so he goes chip on this thing. And and what he does is he starts to restore the temple. And he starts rebuilding the temple, expanding uh, the temple. And it it is through this uh, expansion of King Herod... Uh, Jesus comes on the scene in Mark chapter 11 during the rebuilding phase under uh, King Herod. Okay, so I'm just giving you a little uh, timeline here of where we are with Jesus in the history of the temple. Well, why is this so important? I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, thanks for the history lesson on on the temple, but what does this really have to do with anything today? Uh, Well, the truth is, is that the temple after Jesus uh, enters the scene in Mark chapter 11 and about uh, maybe 30 years later okay you were looking around um, AD 60 or so AD 63 AD 64 all right the temple is complete okay under King Herod the the rebuilding the re- restoration of the temple is complete only seven years later guess what happens The temple is destroyed once again by the Roman leader, the Roman general. His name is Titus Vespasian. Under his leadership, they go and they destroy the temple. Once again, it says that not one stone was left on top of the other. This is a complete annihilation of the temple, a a complete removal of the temple. And the story of the temple, the reason why this is important, because the story of the temple is the story of God's people and their repentance repeated cycle of sin and idolatry and this is what happens the 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 temple was built the people were flourishing the presence of God was there they fall back into the cycle of sin and then guess what God's judgment would come through the devastation of the temple this is the centerpiece of Israel this is the centerpiece of their faith and what what we have to realize is that all throughout all of Scripture through the Old Testament, that we see God's divine judgment being played out on the destruction of the temple. God used the Babylonians. God used uh, uh, the Roman leaders. He used this to express divine judgment. He, He used this to express a cleansing of God's people, a purging of sin. And once again, what we learned last week is that, that this was not the king that the people expected, right? This was the king that the people needed. So what we have to remember is that because Jesus is the king that we need, not what, what the people expected, we must remember that this was not an issue with Rome. This is not a Roman issue. You, you think the Roman government could stop Jesus? No. You you think that this was the issue. This is not the issue. This is not a social issue. I'm sure that that Jesus, when he was walking through Jerusalem, he saw plenty of things that needed change. He, He saw plenty of things that needed to be made great again. Wait, nope, that's not it. All right, But he saw plenty of things that probably needed to change with their foreign policy, right? He he saw plenty of things that needed to change, but the issue was not with Rome. God, uh, Jesus in this moment, he is not concerned about the people's relationship with Rome. He is concerned about the people's relationship with God Almighty. And this is what we see being played out. The issue is the lack of holiness in the people of God. That's why we are talking about today the pursuit of holiness, because that was the issue. That is the issue. The point is that Jesus has not come. He did not come to restore political stability in Rome. He came to restore holiness in the people of God. And so as we study this passage, we're going to see four specific things that that Jesus reveals to us through the passage. The first thing is this. Jesus reveals the corruption of the temple. All right, Jesus reveals the corruption of the temple. Look back with me in verse 15. It says, he entered the temple and what did he do? He began to drive out those who sold, those who bought in the temple. He overturned tables of the money changers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. right, so this is the scene that we kind of come to in the temple with Jesus. This is a scene that he's come to just wreak havoc on the temple and the people who are there. And Jesus enters this temple, this 35-acre area, okay? This is the 35-acre. The it is the outer court of the Gentiles. And so you had these outer courts, you had the inner courts, and then it was leading up to the Holy of Holies, okay? And so the closer you got, the closer you were to the presence of the Almighty, okay? That's how the temple worked. But so Jesus was here in this 35-acre. Keep in mind, this is not just some small temple, Okay, you have to remember that. Just the outer courts we see is, was 35 acres, all right? So that's a pretty good uh, horse farm, you know what I mean? And so this is what Jesus walks into. And it's kind of strange to think and, and to realize, man, how did, how did Jesus do this? How, how was he in such a massive area? How does he drive the people out? How does he kick over the stools of, of the people selling the pigeons? How does he uh, turn over the tables of this, the money exchangers and, and, and all of these things, right? How does he do this? And it kind of reminds me of a story back when I was in middle school. I was in seventh grade, all right? Seventh grade, I was in math class, all right? It was, uh, I don't even know what it was, some type of algebra, who knows, all right? But here's what was happening. That day, we walk in, and guess what we found out? Our teacher was gone, and we had a substitute teacher, all right? And so for a mischievous punk like myself at the time, uh, this is what that said to me. Game on, all right? This is about to be fun. I mean, there's no reason to even, even think about doing work. I mean, this, this substitute, she, I mean, she don't care, you know? I mean, this is kind of like a free day in math class. Anybody ever been there? I'm the only hoodlum, me and you, good. All right, so uh, I had a a bouncy ball in my pocket. I was very mature for my age. And um, and, and I, I thought to myself, I was like, man, I wonder how many times I can throw this bouncy ball against the wall and catch it before that lady sees me. All right? Well, guess what? That turned into a little bit of Classroom Olympics, all right? And so uh, by this time, my buddy, man, he started doing it, okay? So I would throw one, pass it, he would throw one, then we started throwing it to each other, and man, it was just a great time, all right? And so finally, things just got way out of hand, all right? Somebody hit the teacher. Uh, It wasn't me, most likely, but I think it was. Um, But but the, the substitute teacher just came off the rails. I mean, she already told us to stop. And uh, I would love to say that this was before Jesus, but um, it wasn't, unfortunately. But she just got super frustrated. I I mean, she was just so frustrated. She took her hand. She slammed it down on the desk. Like, wham! And she said, that is it! I mean, she was yelling. I know everybody on the hallway heard. And I was just thinking, please don't laugh in this moment, right? (laughs) Because you, I don't know why you always want to do that when you're getting in trouble. You just want to giggle, right? Well, then she says, that is it. She, she goes out the door, and she comes back in with our football coach. Right. <laughs> this is not good. This is not good. This is, this is a, uh, a man of, of men, okay? This guy was... Old, but still somehow farm strong. You know what I'm talking about? He doesn't lift weights, but he can sling a cow. I promise you, all right? And, and this is the thing. And, and he comes in and he slams the door open and he just begins to yell at anyone and everyone. He does. He turns over a desk. You know, the little desk. I mean, one just went flying. I don't think it hit a small child. I don't know what happened. I kind of blacked out in this moment. A chair went down and he looked straight at me. He makes eye contact with me, and I literally almost wet myself, and he said, he said, you come with me, and what did I do? I said, yes, sir, I got up, and I just went, whatever he was doing, it was like a a cow going to the slaughterhouse, right, and and then he says, anybody who was with this guy, you get up and come with him, well, guess what my friends did, they just sat there. All right, so you either had a coward, all right, get onto the coward or be the snitch. And so I'm just in the, I'm just like, fine, I was just me, whatever. And so I go and man, it was not good, all right. I got, I had to do wall, sit on the wall, y'all know what I'm talking about? And uh, man, my legs were burning. I know that's illegal nowadays. I had to do push ups and just all these things, right? Okay, this guy had a way of demanding a room. Okay this guy had had the authority to demand your attention without, with, without any any case of no one hearing. You know what I mean? Well, this is exactly the case with Jesus when, when Jesus enters a place because of his Uh, uh, the astonishment of his teaching, right? Because of the miracles uh, that that are coming with him, he has a way of being able to own the room. When he walks in, you know who's in charge. When Jesus walks into this place, you know that he has the authority. Remember, uh, later we find out the, the Pharisees kind of ask Jesus and to say, hey, look, this is after Jesus turns the tables. This is after everything happens in the temple. The, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they're asking, hey, who gives you the right? What authority do you have? You see, somebody that really has authority doesn't have to express it. They just have it. And this is the case with Jesus. He had the authority. He knew exactly what he was doing and when he speaks, the crowds listen, and they heard exactly what to say. And this is what happens. Jesus started tying in the fig tree here. Okay, He, he reveals the corruption, Okay, and he begins to tie in the fig tree. Basically, remember what, what he said. Hey, this is a fruitless tree. This is a tree that has nothing but leaves. It is not useful to anyone. And guess what? He is saying the same thing about the temple. He is saying, look, this temple is worthless right now. The operations that are taking place in this temple are nothing but leaves. The operations that are taking place in this temple are fruitless. And this drives Jesus toward anger. This drives Jesus toward a righteous anger. And he starts overturning the tables. And this is what is happening. Jesus is looking out across the landscape of the temple. He, he's seeing this corruption, and, and here's the issue. It's not just because they were buying and selling things, okay? The, the corruption was not that in and of itself. The corruption is this, that the mafia has taken over the temple. That's the issue, that, that the religious leaders who are supposed to be leading people toward the throne of God were keeping people from God. That's the corruption that's taking place. You see, what they were doing is you had to come. Remember, this is Passover week. Okay? So you have millions of people, estimated about 2.5 million, 2.75 some estimate. 2.75 million people, and they're coming, they're traveling from all over. They're coming from far and distant places, and they're coming to the center of Jerusalem, the temple where they're supposed to come and make their sacrifices. And so they would bring an animal with them. Well, what type of animal is it supposed to be? It's supposed to be a perfect animal, right? One who is spotless, one who is clean. And they would bring this animal, and before they could sacrifice it, it would have to be approved by the priest. It would have to be approved by the religious leaders. And so the religious leaders had the power to say, uh, no, that one's not good enough. Yeah, sure, I'll give my stamp on that one. And so they needed the stamp of approval. Well, guess what? If they didn't get the stamp of approval, what were they going to do? Were they going to travel all the way back? in hopes of making it back. No, all right, you don't just get on a Delta flight and hope to make it back with your spotless calf, okay? That's not how this thing works. They're journeying for days. And so they can't just go back and retrieve an animal. Well, guess what? Now the priests have the power to say, hey, you know what? No big deal. Your animal didn't pass the test. It's not approved. But hey, right over here, we have some pigeons for sale. Just for you. No big deal. Well, guess what? The pigeons that they were selling were no longer 25 cents. They were $4. Okay, there's a 16, uh, it was marked up 16 times. Okay, that's what was happening here. And not only that, so then they were overpaying. They're exploiting the poor. They're exploiting the people who had to travel from a far distance. And then guess what? If you didn't have the right currency, then you were taxed in exchange for the correct Jewish currency. And so all of these things were taking place. And so who was controlling getting all this money? The priests were. The, the people who are supposed to be the leaders to lead people toward the throne of God. And they were the ones who were corrupt. They were the ones. This is the same thing that happened before the Babylonians came and took over the temple and destroyed the temple and took the people of God captive. The, the fact that they found out that the people of God were not pursuing holiness the the leaders were corrupt the shepherds were corrupt the the priests were corrupt therefore the nation of Israel was corrupt and so this is what Jesus is seeing in the temple it's more than just man I can't believe they're selling and buying stuff that's not good no they were exploiting the Gentiles they were exploiting the poor they were taking advantage of people so that they could turn a bigger profit. This is what was happening. This is corruption at the highest level. This is why I say that the mafia has taken over the temple of God. And no regard for the work of God. And then, so Jesus, he sees this corruption. And then as he, he, he continues to, to look and And he's visualizing what all is still happening. And then it says this, after he turned over the tables, after he kicked out the stools from the people selling the pigeons, after all of that, guess what? Then it says this in verse uh, 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, it would be easy to kind of gloss over this verse that, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But it's actually really interesting because this is what we see, number two. Jesus reveals their contentment with sin. Okay, this is what Jesus does. He reveals their contentment with sin. And when it says that Jesus was stopping them from going through uh, the temple, it's a little bit more than just cutting someone off uh, from their travel plans. All right, so how many of you, by show of hands, okay, don't leave me hanging up here. All right, but how many of you uh, have ever been to a flea market? Anybody? Yeah, look, we're in East Texas, all right? Georgia is not that much different from East Texas, all right? That's why I feel at home here, okay? But here's the truth. Here's the truth. Uh, flea markets are very interesting to me i used to love i have uh memories every uh, weekend we sometimes my family would get up on saturday mornings and we would go to a flea market all right we were high class all right and uh this is and, and i would love it though because it's the only place that you could buy a jigsaw fine china for your china cabinet an ant farm and a hermit crab all in one place, all right? You could do all these things right there at a flea market. It's incredible, all right? But here's what is interesting. See, most flea markets, they're kind of set up in a square, right? And then you have vendors all throughout the market. Well, what's so interesting to me is that, man, these people would come and set up shop only for a couple days, then they would go to the next, and then they would just kind of travel around, and meanwhile traveling with all of their inventory, all right? All of their inventory, their entire shop was in their vehicle somehow, all right? And it's like, I, I don't know really what's happening. It's like Mary Poppins' purse. Things just keep coming out of it, you know what I mean? And, but things just keep coming out of people's trunks. Like, man, how did they fit that entire china cabinet in the trunk of their car? I mean, it's just incredible the creativity that it took to just come in and out. But, but, but here's what would happen. At the end of the day when they're shutting down the market, what would happen? Well, everybody would start packing up all of their stuff, right? And they had two options. You could either go around the flea market like you're supposed to, to go to your vehicle and get everything packed up so you could go home uh, for the rest of the weekend. Or you could do what most people did, and you just go straight through the flea market where all the customers, everybody are at. And then you just have this uh, chaotic exchange of people going back and forth, carrying things. I mean, it was just super chaotic. Well, guess what? That's exactly what was happening in the temple. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not comparing the temple of God to a flea market, but, but the same premise is happening. I mean, you think about it. At the, at the end of the day, the, the vendors were, were packing up shop. All right, Whether they were uh, vendors inside the temple courts or outside, what they were doing is they would take their stuff and they would go straight through the temple to get to the other side. Essentially, what they have done is they have minimized the temple to be the shortest route for their convenience. You see what's taking place here. They they have a higher regard for personal convenience than they do for personal holiness. And this is what Jesus is getting irate about. This is what Jesus is frustrated about, is that the people of God, when you go into the temple, you are to remember that this is the dwelling place of the Almighty. It's not just your shortcut. This is where you come to encounter the presence of God. This is not your shortcut. You see, it's almost like they need to be reminded in this moment of Psalm chapter 24 that says, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Like, who can do that? Who can, who can stand in this holy place? The psalmist is saying that no one deserves to be uh, in the holy place of God. No one deserves to ascend the hill of God. You don't deserve these things. And it's a reminder that Jesus here is saying, look, you are entering the presence of God. This is not just something for your personal convenience. And from the very beginning of the temple uh, of God, when it was dedicated... Solomon is standing before the people. And he, he's, he's standing there and he says this in, in 1 Kings chapter 8. He says, uh, "O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you. Neither heaven above or, or earth beneath Keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. What is Solomon saying? Okay, look, first of all, before I talk about the temple, before this dedication takes place, I need to remind you of one thing. There is no one like you, God. There is no one above you. There is no one who is like you. There is nobody who can even come near to you. No one. Is worthy of your presence. And then it goes down in verse 27, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? It's almost as if Solomon is just astonished and blown away in this moment. He's saying, God, will you seriously dwell on earth? Like with, with us? Will you dwell on earth? He 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 says, but behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? See the magnitude of what Solomon is talking about here? He's saying this isn't just this isn't just a place that we have built. It's not just the, a, a temple that we have um, erected on behalf of God. That's not what this is. This is the dwelling place of the Almighty God. And he's saying, we don't deserve this. This is what Solomon's saying. We don't deserve to have your presence. We don't deserve to even be near to you. But God, you have looked at the temple. You have created it. You have designed it so that you may dwell among your people. And this is what is happening. And the people have become so enslaved to their routine that they were unaware of the presence of God. Do you think that you and I could be guilty of the same thing? That we are so enslaved to our everyday life that we are numb to the movement of God around us. I mean, let's be honest, there, there are some times that I am guilty of this, that I am so guilty in my routine of church that I could be numb If even to the point that if God was trying to speak to me through a burning bush, I may would miss it. This is something that we must fight against as the people of God. This is something that we must uh, be against as God's people that, that we don't miss, that we don't become so enslaved to our routine that we no longer are aware of the movement and the presence. We are no longer aware of God doing things around us. We just are going through the mundane tasks of our religious lifestyle that we are unaware of the movement and spirit of God. What a scary and dangerous place to be. Could it be that just out of routine and convenience that we're just simply gathered here right now? That we have no real pursuit of holiness. We have no real desire to encounter God. We're just here. We're checking off those religious boxes for personal convenience rather than personal holiness. Look at what Isaiah chapter 1 says. Isaiah chapter 1, it says this, what what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? This is God speaking. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of ram's and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats when you come to appear before me who has required of you this trampling of my courts. You see what God is doing here? He says this in verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. God is saying, stop bringing these things to me. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. This is to the people of God. God is addressing his people who have become routine in their offerings. they become routine in their sacrifice. they become routine in their trampling of the courts of God. they become routine in the things of God. This is exactly what is happening. And so here, this this begs the question: should we be routine in our gathering of worship? Yes. Should we be routine in going to life group? Yes. Should we be routine in, the, in, uh, in giving of our tithes and offerings? Yes. All of these things are good. It is, it is good to have a habit of, of going to church. It is good. These things are good uh, to us. But guess what? Not at the expense of holiness. You see, as we pursue holiness as the people of God, guess what comes out of that? A desire to be in the house of worship, to desire to be in worship, to desire to give of our tithes and offerings, not the other way around. See, it's religious and it is legalism to say you have to be in church every week. It is religious and it is legalism to say you have to be in life group. It is religious and it is uh, legalism to say you have to tithe 10%. You have to give of your tithes and offerings. You have to do these things. That is religion and that is legalism. And guess what? God is not impressed with your church attendance. Here is the case. The fact that you, when you pursue holiness... When you pursue to encounter the almighty God, those things flow out of you. So it's no longer legalism. It is just what you want to do because you desire to be close to the almighty God. See, there's a difference. We don't pursue legalism. We pursue holiness. And let me just remind you of just a little truth. The habits that you create on the mountaintop will drive you through the valley. Habits are good, but not at the expense of holiness. I'm going to say that one more time. The the habits you create on the mountaintop will drive you through the valley. This is why spiritual disciplines are so important for the people of God. This is why it's so important. Even when you don't feel like coming to church, that you go. Because you are creating habits that are a pursuit of holiness. And they continue to feed the desire to be near the holy God. And then this is what Jesus does. After, after that, he sees the corruption. He sees their contentment with sin. They're content with where they are. And then Jesus p- draws it back and he reveals their true purpose. This is what Jesus does. He, he turns it back towards scripture. And he says, hey, this is what you are supposed to be about. Listen, he says, and he was teaching them, right? And and saying to them, is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. What have you done? But you have made it a den of robbers. You have made it a den of robbers. And what Jesus is doing, he is quoting from two Old Testament passages here. He's quoting from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. And he's quoting this with no mistake. Listen to what verse 7 says of Isaiah 56. It says, These... I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar. Who is Jesus talking about right here? Excuse me, who is God talking about? Who is God talking about in this passage of Isaiah 56? Well, he's talking about the Gentiles, right? And who is a Gentile? A Gentile is anyone who is not Jew, Okay, so a Gentile is anyone who is outside of the fold of God. A Gentile is anyone who is outside of the promise and inheritance of God. And so what he is saying is that you are supposed to create a temple for them. You see what he says? We're we're supposed to be a house of prayer for who? Who? Mark says it here, Matthew leaves it out, but Mark says, for all nations, for all people, so that those who surround the great city of, of Israel, for the nation of Israel, those who, who surround you, they will know that my hand is upon you. You see the purpose here, he's drawing them back toward the purpose, but look at what verse six says. All right? Verse six says, and the foreigners... Okay, talking about the Gentiles though, who are outside the fold of God. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him. To love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. Listen, he says that this shall be a house of prayer for all nations. God has made us to be a people. What, what Jesus is reminding them of is that God has made you a people that should be the city on a hill. You're, you're supposed to be on behalf of the nations around you. You're supposed to be set apart for the purpose of others knowing who God is. That, that they will look at the temple, they will see the temple, and they will understand in a greater way the magnitude, the holiness, the graciousness, and the mercies of God even more. They will look at you as a people being set apart who are pursuing holiness. He's saying, look, when they look at you, they're not going to just look and see who you are, but they're going to look and they're going to understand who Who I am because of you. He said, You have missed the purpose. And in fact, you are exploiting the Gentiles. You're keeping the Gentiles out. The reason why they set up in the outer courts of of the Gentiles is because that's just the the, the place that, that would fit them. But guess what they were doing? They were keeping the Gentiles from worship. They were exploiting those who were not in the fold of God. And this is the exact opposite of what we are to do as the people of God. We are to be a people that is set apart so that others will know who Jesus is. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, in proportion as a church is holy, in that proportion will its testimony for Christ be powerful. See, our holiness Is not just for our sake, but for the people surrounding us. It's for those who do not know God. It's for the people who are apart, who are far from God. And then through this, the last thing, it says that Jesus reveals their need for purity. See, this is what Jesus does. He reveals their need for purity. And this is what Psalm 119 says. You say, well, well how, how am I supposed to do this? Like, how am I supposed to pursue holiness in my life? Listen to Psalm 119. It says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Look, the psalmist is asking the same question. He's saying, how am I supposed to be doing this? How am I supposed to be keeping my way pure? How am I supposed to walk in purity? And he's not just talking about just a a simple type of purity here. He's saying, how am I to walk in righteousness as you require, O Lord? And he gives the answer. He says, by guarding it according to your word. Guarding it according to your word. You want to pursue holiness in your life? You want to pursue holiness in your life? Then get into God's word. Uh, The intake of God's word is the only thing that we have. The intake of God's word. But then he goes on, he says, with my whole heart I seek you. You see, Jesus went to the centerpiece of God's people. And what did he do? He began to root out evil. He began to drive out corruption. He began to to show the sins of the people. He began to show, hey, this is what it looks like to be a follower of God. This is what it looks like to be a holy people. This is what it looks like. And basically what Jesus is saying is that your life should be a reflection of the holiness of God. But see, in the New Testament, there is a significant paradigm shift that takes place. Right? Paul talks about this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we see this. We see that, do you not know? This is what Paul is saying. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? It's almost like Paul is like, guys, do you not know what has happened? Do you not realize what Christ has done for you? He's saying there's no longer a temple that we have to go to. There's no longer a temple that we have to go so that we can experience the manifest presence of God. You are now the temple of God. You, as the people of God, you are now the dwelling place. The fact that God himself, that God himself would look at you and would look at me and say, you know what, that is a suitable dwelling place for me to live. How astonishing is that? How astonishing is it that now we no longer have to go to a temple to experience and encounter God, but rather we can do it where we are because we now are the temple. And so what does this mean? It means that everything has changed for us. Everything changes when Jesus died on the cross. Everything changed when he rose from the grave. He didn't just rise from a grave just to show a cool miracle. He rose from the grave because he had overcome, he had defeated sin, he has defeated death. And guess what? He has made a way for you to become that rightful place for God to set his life in yours. This is what Jesus did for you. See, this is Tuesday. Jesus is driving them out of the temple, he's overturning tables. But Friday is coming, and he's saying, look, there's going to be a change. This is no longer going to be needed because the the temple that God is going to raise up, the, the temple that God is going to build to show the nations of his glory to show the magnitude of his holiness, to show the expression of his mercy, the temple is now going to be built in his people. So you, as a follower of Jesus, this is your life. This is why Paul talks about in Romans that you are to be a living sacrifice unto the Lord because you are the place now. There's not a temple to go and make a sacrifice. You are now the place of sacrifice, and it is your life that you are going to sacrifice daily. You are going to die to yourself so that you may live on behalf of others, that the nations may know who I am. They will know the greatness of God because of the temple in you that I am building. This is what Jesus has done for us. He is rooting out sin in your life. He is driving out sin in your life and praise be to God that he is the one who alone is faithful and just and when we confess our sins you know what he does? When we confess our sins before a holy God because guess what? You and I are enemies of God. We should be enemies of God. Our temple we as the temple of God should be destroyed over and over and over again just like with the people of Israel but instead when we confess our sins because of the work of Jesus Christ, that we can stand before him as righteous. And he says, he will forgive us of our sins. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, Jesus alone can drive that out of your life. And so this is what I want to do. I just want every single person, I just want you to bow your head, and I just want you to close your eyes just for a moment. And and I just want to ask you, First, do you have the dwelling of God in your life? Are you pursuing holiness in your life? There are only two responses from this passage. Either you need God to come and cleanse you from all unrighteousness for the first time. You need to be saved by Jesus. You need for uh, God to indwell your life by the Spirit of God. You need Him living in you. So you want to be saved for the first time. Then I'm going to ask that you would be bold. And then in just a moment, when we respond, you just come. And you take the hand of one of our pastors. And you say, man, I need Jesus. And then the second response is, Maybe you simply have not been living a life that is pursuing holiness. And you just need to come and confess. You just need to come and ask, as the psalmist did, come search my heart, oh God, and show me. Show me, God, where I am missing the mark. Show me, God, where I am failing. And cleanse me from this unrighteousness. Those are the two responses. And I'm just going to ask that you be bold during this time of response. Lord Jesus, this is your time. And God, we are asking, Lord, that you would indeed cleanse us. God, that you would make us right before you. Jesus, we praise you. That is through the blood of yourself. God, it's through the blood of Jesus that we can boldly approach the throne of God, that we can be in the presence of the Almighty, that we can encounter God because of what you have done on the cross. So God, would you draw us into your presence? Would you draw us toward a lifestyle that pursues holiness? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you look up, I'm going to ask that you'd stand up.